There's a whole database of knowledge that helps to devise the conservation strategies on the ground. I mean, people know how to protect these areas, um, but they need help doing so. They need access to resources, information or techniques, but the partnership and the ideas, the inspiration, it's, it's all there in the landscape in front of you, I think. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard Alele Lichtenfeld, co-founder and CEO of African People and Wildlife, explain why conservation strategy is most effective when it starts with engaging local community. Esri Conservation Solutions Director David Gadsden investigates how modern conservationists use data and technology to balance the relationship between people and nature. Dr. Lichtenfeld, welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Thank you so much, David. It's wonderful to be here today. The balance between nature and civilization has been a common theme in conservation for as long as the term existed. But for African people and wildlife, you've taken that really to a whole other level. Can you help us understand how and why conservationists are taking balance more seriously than in previous decades? And, and what has led to this sort of evolution of the, of the space? So I think for several reasons, David, I mean, historically, conservation began with the idea of protecting natural spaces and wildlife from people, sort of excluding um, people or different uses in a landscape, perhaps just encouraging tourism opportunities or opportunities to get out into the wild. But as you know, time went on and as we began to understand in ecology, just the interconnectedness of natural systems across huge wide landscapes, we began to realize how absolutely critical it is to, to look at a wider systems view, to look at the whole landscape and get the whole perspective into place. And when you do that, you recognize that people are inherently part of these natural places. Um, they surround many protected areas. They in fact protect a lot of grassland and forest outside of formally protected areas. They're places where wildlife move um, and migrate. And of course, as we see more and more the impacts of climate change on the world, we recognize that species may shift their um, movement patterns. They may shift their territories. And so if we, if we really set up a boundary between people and wildlife, we're setting up something that really is artificial. It's not natural. And I think that's one of the reasons why balance has become more into play, recognizing that we have to work across this wider landscape. But I also think in terms of being more inclusive in conservation and recognizing that communities surrounding protected areas are important stakeholders, they're important conservationists themselves, and recognizing what their needs and interests are in conservation and helping to find the balance between the needs of the wildlife and the wild and the needs of the local people is really where conservation is headed. How have the communities that you work with shaped your vision and approach? And then second question, what does it take to become entrusted in the community so you can actually work towards adaptive management approaches? I'd say, David, that everything that we've done at African People and Wildlife has been about learning from the local community. And that's actually how we've developed such a strong model of community engagement. When I first started working uh, in northern Tanzania 20 years ago now, the questions that I asked were so critical. The 
openness to understanding the local points of view towards conservation, which is what really began to help develop ideas around what would be practical, what was needed by local communities in order to be uh, continually tolerant of the wildlife they were living with. And so I learned so much about the ideas that communities have for conservation. I've recognized them as real stakeholders and players in conservation, but at the heart of it, um, and without romanticizing it, I really do believe that when you have a conversation where you take a local community member and you're serious about conservation and their ability to participate in the conservation community, they jump on board. People want to be involved. People want to protect the environment. Um, people want to show their children that you know the future that they're setting up for them is going to be healthy um, from both an ecological and a social point of view. That dovetails right into your second question about trust. Um, I think when you when you have a genuine conversation, and most of mine are in Swahili, so that's really, really important, is that we're speaking with the local language. Of course, many of my team members are also community members, so if they need to speak in Maasai or they need to speak in another language, um, they have that at their fingertips. Having real trusting dialogue, um, being there, not disappearing, always standing up for what you believe in, but also working together when there are conflicts. It's not always perfect. And sometimes, obviously, people have differing points of view. There are moments when, uh, for instance, in the history of our work, we lose lions to conflict, to retaliation. Community members know I have an affinity to lions, and yet they also know I have an affinity to the local population, and I understand from their their point of view, what it means to lose your prize cow or, or, you know, the goat or sheep that you were just about to sell to pay for school fees. When you are open to both sides, and again, getting back to that concept of balance, when you recognize that it's not us or them, but that there is somewhere in the middle that we can drive towards, I think that's when that trust really starts to build. You mentioned a really eloquent scenario of the Maasai also investing in stewardship of the grasslands because it benefited their cattle and also wildlife with so many different you know communities and across Tanzania and different uh, cultural practices what are some of the other communities and their needs of the natural landscape yeah, so there are, of course, many uh, communities that herd livestock, the Wasakuma, the Barabag, and others, the Maasai, as I mentioned. There are also in Tanzania um, has the remarkable Hadzabe population. These are hunter-gatherers. This is a small community that absolutely their whole fabric of being is tied to the natural world, being able to hunt um, with a bow and arrow, just, you know, really living off the landscape and what it provides. So a lot of work has been done by some of our other partners to help protect the lands that those Hadzabe people live on and to help them preserve the natural resources within them. 75% of Tanzania's population lives in rural areas and has some dependency in one way or another on natural resources. And so it's recognizing what those are. Are we working with a hunter-gatherer? Are we working with a pastoralist? What are their key priorities and interests? And then how can we develop shared goals around conservation that benefit both the community and the community members, as well as the wildlife and environment that they're surrounded by? It's just extraordinary to me that hunter-gatherer communities can still exist in this world. How, how is the Hazabe 
possibly sustaining their existence with all of the growth and population pressure and various challenges to the to the landscape. For any society, as development comes closer, it, it is very challenging. And the Hadzabe have been, again, supported by some of our partners in the Northern Tanzania Rangelands Initiative to have the lands that they depend upon protected um, and to, to get rights to those lands, which are absolutely critical. But then we also see other groups coming in, you know, wanting to change who the Hadzabe are, feeling like they should have more access to um, school and medicine and food. And, and so it's, again, this is one of these difficult balances. How do you maintain um, the integrity of the society and, and, you know, who they really are while also ensuring, you know, they have access to um, what, what I think the global community would hope all people have access to. And I think the answer really comes down to the people themselves. Um, the Hadzabe themselves will determine what parts of their culture they want to embrace and continue and perpetuate. And then what parts of the culture they may wish to change a little bit and, and adapt. And hopefully um, in this you know, increasingly globalized community, they retain some of the things that are so special. I've worked with the Hadzabe and, and gone out on the landscape with them. Um, in the early years when I was doing my PhD, the Hadzabe were very um, helpful to me in tracking the big cats um, in landscapes where seeing a big cat was um, very, very difficult, but looking for their tracks or their paw prints on the ground um, was much more feasible. And we could go out in the morning um, across a landscape and you wouldn't see a single animal, but the Hadza could be reading the ground and there a whole symphony of interactions and uh, things had happened the night before that they were able to read just by looking at the ground and understanding the landscape and the wildlife around them. So, you know, those are kind of some of the things I just... I hope they um, they will be able to hold on to and and to really because it's something that's just tremendously unique in this world today and is just it, it's incredible to to witness a community like the Hadzabe. I mean, when people think of hunter gatherers, they're likely thinking they're living in some lush landscape and jungle and they're simply picking fruit off trees, right? But the reality is they're living in an incredibly harsh, challenging, dry in most cases environment. How is their knowledge of sustaining their community in that place, which goes back as, as far as we can imagine, how is knowledge, uh, indigenous knowledge, sustained and contributing to conservation today, or how should it be? From the Hadzabe's point of view, it's really by passing down um, knowledge from one generation to another, um, historically through storytelling and singing. And um, when I was working with the Hadza and we were driving around the landscape, there would be very few silent moments in the car. They were always uh, singing a song, often about the landscape we were driving through that, that would be ingrained in their memory. So they would remember um, the waterhole is over here or here is where we saw a large population of wildebeest. And I think uh, historically in, in the landscapes where they live, that's what they've done. They've kind of um, understood through folklore and storytelling, kind of the history, the environmental history of the area. Uh, I think they're challenged today by that, again, by development. Um, do the young um, Hadzabe children still want to pursue this way of life? And I think that um, having had conversations with Hadzabe elders, this is one of their big concerns 
concerns. And one of the things that we did when we were working with the Hadzabe to track the big cats is we would always have our head senior tracker be one of the elders that really knew the difference between all of the tracks, the lions, but not just whether it was a lion or a leopard, but they could tell the difference between a female lion, a male lion, a juvenile, a cub, an adult. Um, really, really precise information about the, the animal that had walked by. And so along with that elder, we would always invite some of the youth to learn. The Hadza don't often see that many lions, in fact, in the areas where they live and reside, but where we were working, there were quite a few. So they were able to revitalize some of that understanding of the tracks and the knowledge and then pass that on um, to the youth. And I think the more that we can do that, the more that we can help record the, the knowledge, the stories of the local people in different ways, in ways that are meaningful to them, and then also help them continue to inspire youth around their society, around their cultural relationship to nature, I think that's where the magic happens because, you know, that is one generation passing on to another. What I love about this place and why it's so important to me. And, and we all, you know, get that sense of nostalgia when our elders, you know, pass on something that's so critical to them. And then it becomes very meaningful to us as well. It seems fair to say that the strength of your relationship with the indigenous communities that you work with is a, a really fundamental ingredient to the success of African people and wildlife. What about other partnerships? What about uh, governments, other nonprofits? What's the network of partners that you, you work with to advance conservation? In conservation, uh, the more partners we have, um, the more effective partnerships, I should say, that we have, the better. We work with limited budgets. We work with limited opportunities. And so the more partnerships that we can build, um, there is far too much to be done for the existing network of conservationists or conservation organizations out there to do it on their own. We need to partner, we need to develop, we need to support one another in our work. And so at African People and Wildlife, one of our key, key, key partners, of course, um, are the government authorities. That's where you get that systems-based change. If we can work with them who have a footprint across all of Tanzania, and if we can help them embrace uh, community engagement and develop partnerships with community members. That's where the magic in the long term will really happen because we can take what we've done on the ground, what we've, you know, the impact that we've proven with our, with our initiatives in Northern Tanzania, and we can help scale them across the country and even beyond. You mentioned how technology contributes to transparency and, and effectiveness with your indigenous partners. Does it assist in those more institutional partnerships somehow? Oh, yes. I think being able to demonstrate uh, as basically now a medium-sized organization, I'd say, is where African people and wildlife is. Just the power, the impact of the data that we're collecting and to be able to be in a government meeting and not simply just talk about it, but demonstrate it, show it, show the hub, show a, you know, a screenshot of the data pouring in. It's tremendously powerful. And we're getting so much interest also from the educational institutions in the country. Mweka School of Wildlife Management, uh, University of Dar 
Dar es Salaam, um, all these different, so Koine University of Agriculture, different potential partners that also would like to utilize that data in different ways. And being able to feed data into their analyses, to their needs, to their questions is tremendously powerful. And, and also, of course, being able to link up with institutions globally as well is very exciting. What about organic technology? You know, what, what about working with the landscape itself to help protect communities? Do you have strategies that you know, the Maasai keep their uh, cattle in, in, in a boma that they build with branches and thorns, for example? Is there a way to extend what's available on the landscape to help lessen human-wildlife conflict? Most of the solutions that are the most sustainable come from those local landscapes. They come from local people. And a great example for us is our living wall. These are environmentally friendly, predator-proof corrals that protect livestock from lions and, and keep the lions out of trouble as well. And the reason why they're so successful is because they were a local idea. Um, the Maasai had typically used Camifera Africana trees around the outside of their households. They just never, enclosures, they had never used them for the actual livestock corral. And when we came together and we learned from them how to coppice the trees and plant them, and then we added the idea of surrounding it with some chain link fencing just to fill in the gaps, we have a tremendous tremendously successful product. And there are more than 1,400 living walls across northern Tanzania today. And as a result, we've seen conflict at the BOMA just drop in the communities where we've installed them. And it's it's not a handout. People pay 25% of the cost of the living wall. They have to harvest the trees and plant them before the team comes on site. So they're both financially and um, uh, physically invested uh, in their living wall. And as a result, we're seeing lion populations rebound because now people don't have to go out and kill the lions. Lions haven't taken their livestock. There isn't this um, powder keg of conflict sort of simmering across a community. And I think, you know, we've seen that also with our rangeland conservation program. We can utilize technology to collect data, but uh, as you're saying, David, the, the local technology, the local knowledge, Maasai pastoralists have been managing these landscapes for centuries. They intimately understand these local environments, the grass species, which one is good, which is palatable, which is invasive, not good. They know the names of them. They, you know, There's a whole database of knowledge there that we can learn from and that helps to devise the conservation strategies on the ground. I mean, people know how to protect these areas, um, but they need help doing so. They need access to resources, um, sometimes access to additional information or techniques, but the partnership and the ideas, the inspiration, it's, it's all there in the landscape in front of you, I think. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast, and thanks to Leila Lichtenfeld for sharing the good news of sustainable conservation in Africa. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate Esri and the Science of Wear wherever you listen to podcasts.